You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, welcome here. Good morning. It is good to be able to worship together. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Colin. I'm uh, the Minister of Discipleship. I oversee our discipleship classes that we do every Sunday afternoon, except today. So uh, we do it all, basically every Sunday, I guess. We're not doing them today. Um, we do these classes every, more or less, every week because we want to be able to equip people with the Bible and to know uh, that you can come here on a Sunday and you'll hear the Bible in our services, you'll hear the Bible in our afternoon classes, uh, and because a lot of people, if they want to learn and study the Bible, they have to go, you know, to Abbotsford from here, you have to, you maybe go to somewhere in Saskatchewan, but we think that the church should be a place where we can equip one another to study the Bible together well. So, we've got classes on Sunday afternoons, those will be starting up. Uh, next week, we're doing a baptism class as we look forward to baptisms, and following that, we're going to look at the person and works of Jesus le- leading up to Easter. So, we'd love to have you join us for those um, in the coming weeks. Now, if you've got your Bibles, it's already been read for us, but you'll want to turn to Matthew 6. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a few at the back. If you don't own a Bible on your way out, we would love for you to take one of those as a gift from us to you. We think that everyone should have a Bible, and we want to make sure that you'd have one. So if you don't have one, please take one of those on the way out. Um, in addition to that, uh, we're going to just pause for a moment, a brief word of prayer. Father, you are good and gracious. Praise you that we can gather together. We can study your word together. We can sing your word together. We can pray your word together. Father, we know that it is uh, not the words that I preach, but your spirit who works through those words to open eyes and warm hearts. We pray this morning would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and honoring to you, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 5, Jesus uh, ends what I think is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount with these words. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine so that others can see you and God can be glorified. And then Jesus, in the sermon, gets into six sections on the law where he talks about how the the righteousness that he has is is a greater righteousness. He's calling us to a higher standard. He's calling the people not just to mere external action, but he's calling them to an internal transformation. It's moving from external action to internal transformation. And Jesus isn't saying the Old Testament was all about external actions and not about the internal transformation. But he's saying that 
for, for a long time, we have mistaken what it was all about, and we were doing the actions without being concerned about our hearts. And it seems like there's a bit of a shift. The previous section seemed kind of theological. It had to do with, with the law. Nobody really likes talking about the law, but Jesus spent a good portion of his time talking about the law. And as we get through the law, he begins to say, uh, he's already told us different ways that we can live. Lots of application in these, these last six weeks of the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us. But as he gets into Matthew 6, he begins to shift a bit and tell us not what to do so much as how to do it. He tells us how we as Christians ought to live our lives, the posture we ought to have. There's a shift in the sermon at this point. And uh, as I was studying this text today, it made me think of a couple things that have happened or are currently happening in our world. Uh, about a hundred years ago in Maoist China, there was an expectation that those who were conforming to what was happening, what they, they, they would perform, they would, they would make actions, they would say the words, they would, they would say the words and they'd be lifted up and praised. They'd be applauded. They've been performing exactly as they're required. On the other side, there were people who would refuse. They wouldn't engage in spreading lie or in, in towing the party line. They were, they were dissidents. And these dissidents, they would be lifted up and shamed publicly. There was this, this posture. You do what you're supposed to do and you'll be applauded and praised. You don't do what you're supposed to do and you'll be shamed. And I think we have similar things happening in our world, especially through social media. You know, we all like to, to jump in on the latest cause. We like to post and make sure that everyone knows that we are towing the party line and that we get praised or applauded for the for lack of a better word, performance that we've just engaged in. Our world is enamored by performances. We see this with all sorts of social causes. And if you don't perform, you're at risk of being shamed until you do. The idea being that if you don't post for whatever the current cause is, you must not care about it. If you don't do the thing publicly so that everyone sees, then you must not care about it. We feel pressure from the world around us to perform in order to receive honor rather than shame and in order to receive accolades rather than denouncements. And as I was studying this and thinking about these things, I, a question came to my mind. Do we do this with our faith? Do we feel these same pressures in our faith? Do we feel the need to perform publicly for everyone to see, for the applause and applaud of the people around us, that we might be recognized for how we live out our faith? In our text today, in Matthew 6, Jesus confronts this sort of performative mentality. And I think he lays down a principle, which is that an active faith done for the applause of man receives its reward in this life. But an active faith done for the glory of God receives its reward in the life to come. An active faith done for the applause of man receives its reward in this life. But an active faith done for the glory of God receives its reward in the life to come. 
He challenges the disciples that he's speaking to, and he challenges us today with four ways that we can act in faith for God's glory in this text. And this text is primarily about giving to the needy. And so there's four things that we're going to look at as we go through this text. The first is that we need to beware the performative mindset. Beware the performative mindset. And we'll be going through this text kind of verse by verse. First one, beware the performative mindset. Again, Matthew 6, verse 1 says these words. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Jesus here is addressing the performance that we all go through. What is the motivation for our actions? Is what we are doing so that we'll be seen by other people? Is what we're doing so that we'll be applauded by those who see us? And I think performance is the right word to use for what Jesus is, is warning against in this text because the thing being addressed is intentionally drawing attention to ourselves and the works that we do or the works that we are engaged in for God in order that we might win the approval and the applause of others. We love to perform. We are driven to perform. We are seeking approval and notice that comes through the performance. And performances, whether they're in the theater or not, are done with the goal of winning the applause of the audience. Whether it's in the theater or in the day-to-day life of acting out our faith, if we're doing it for the applause of others, we are engaged in some sort of act a performance. However, once the reward has been given, once the applause has been gained, once the recognition has been received, the text tells us the reward has been gained. It's over. That's it. There's no more to expect. Once the reward is given, you've been seen. You've got what's coming to you. The only way to get that reward again is to perform again. The only way to get the recognition again is to act again. The only way to get it again is to do it again and again and again in these fleeting, momentary rewards. But our text is, uh, it's known in our text that the Pharisees, who Jesus is, all, is very regularly uh, preaching against, are known for their religious performance. In Matthew 23, verses 2 through 7, Jesus uh, speaks directly to the Pharisees. All right, well, he's speaking to the crowds, but the Pharisees are, are with them. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. They preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. The Pharisees were known for their acts of charity. They were known for their acts of almsgiving. They were known for standing on the street corners and praying for others and giving to others. 
They were known for their obedience and understanding of the Mosaic law as shown in the phylacteries they had on their forehead and on the fringes on their cloaks. They were by all intents and purposes the people that everyone looked up to. They were doing it all right. Everything they did, however, was done for the performance. They said the things, but they didn't do the things. They did instead that which would get them recognition, that which would get them praised and lifted up. Everything they did was for the performance. And Jesus says to those who live by the performance, you have received your reward. You have gotten the applause and applaud you were looking for. John Stark is a pastor in uh, New York City, and he's an author, and he started a newsletter last year, which didn't really go on for very long, which disappointed me because he's a good author. But he did this newsletter, and he said in it, we've likely been catechized and shaped by a performative society more than we know. Our social systems and institutions reward performative lives, and so you have to go along in order to get ahead. But Jesus comes from outside the systems and institutions of this world and works out a way in Matthew 6 and other portions of the Gospels, along with other New Testament writers, to recover and grow out of frailty and into spiritual vibrancy. Jesus teaches us to aim our lives towards the Father who sees in secret. There's a principle of hiddenness to our spirituality that that feels foreign to us. We impulsively only work to live publicly and performatively. The way of Christ seems fruitless to modern people. How are we to make a difference? How are we to be loved? But Jesus and other New Testament writers work out this principle of hiddenness that shows us there is actually a spiritual potency to it. We might call it a fruitful dormancy. In other words, we live and feed off the recognition of others. Look at me. Look at how faithful I am. Look at how much money I give. Look at the ways that I talk about Jesus and evangelize all the time. Look at what I'm doing for the gospel. But there's a warning that Jesus gives to those who are calling out for people to look at them. Your reward has been given. Those who live by the performative mindset die by the performative mindset. Those who live for the applause of others die by the applause of others. Those who live by the performance have received their reward, Jesus says. But on the flip side, verse 1 intimates that those who do not draw attention to their lived-out acts of faith await a reward yet to come. They await a reward from our Father in heaven. The people who do what they're doing without looking for the immediate satisfaction and recognition, but know that in the end, there's something greater coming. C.S. Lewis said somewhere, I don't know where, but he said it. He said that we have these half-baked desires. We want the immediate recognition. We would rather be in the slums playing with mud pies than awaiting a seaside vacation that we know is coming. We would rather receive the praise of man than the reward of God. And if the reward isn't received immediately, Jesus tells us there is an even greater reward yet to come. 
Yet we often exchange trivialities for that which would otherwise be eternal. We exchange mud pies for castles by the sea. Which would you rather have? A public performance and the applause of man or a private performance and the eternal reward of heaven? When we put it into perspective, it would be ridiculous to accept something, uh, something momentary and fleeting, knowing eternity comes for those who wait in humility. And this just makes me think of Jesus. Consistently, Jesus lives in obedience to the law of God in Scripture. Consistently, Jesus doesn't do what will get him the most applause and fame. He does that which ends up having him chased out of towns, that which ends up having him murdered. He does what he does not for the applause and praise of man, but for the reward and glory of God. And he does what he does for the salvation of man. Beware the performative mindset, Jesus says. Nonetheless, the text calls us to obedience by caring for those in need. Caring for those in need. That's the, that's the second thing. We beware the performative mindset and we care for those in need. In Matthew 6, again, verses 2 and 3, both begin with this phrase. When you give to the needy. Not if you give to the needy. Not perhaps you might give to the needy when you give to the needy. The assumption made in the sermon, the assumption made by Jesus is that those who are listening, those who are gathered around, those who are sitting on the side of the mountain as Jesus addresses them, those people are already engaged in caring for the needy among them. The assumption isn't that Jesus has to say, you should go care for the needy, but that they're already caring for the needy. Almsgiving and charity was an expectation for the people of God. In fact, it was built into God's law. In the Old Testament, the farmers were told that they could farm their fields, but to leave the fringes, leave the outskirts, leave the edges, so that those who were in need could come by and, and glean off the edges of the field that which was left behind. The farmers were assured God will provide for all of your needs with what you harvest, and you can provide for the needs of others by leaving a little extra for them to take makes you think of the story of, of Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament. They go to a foreign land. They come back to Naomi's homeland. And as they do that, the, the two of them have nothing. Husband's gone. Son's gone. The two are left on their own. And yet they're able to come to the field and glean. Their needs are provided for. God cares for the needy, and he provides for the needs of those who need them. It reminds me of growing up in the countryside surrounded by orchards in southern Ontario, pretty similar to here. You drive down the quiet streets in the middle of nowhere, trees all around, and, and sure enough, someone was always ready to pull over and walk into the fields and start picking fruit off the trees. You know, it's free food, right? It's just right there for everyone to grab. But what would make the most sense to me in that moment would be for a farmer to come out and chase them out. That's their, that's their livelihood. That's their farm. That's their fruit. They need that in order to survive. And yet, time and time again, I saw my neighbors not chase people out, but welcome them in to come and take what they need. God cares for the needy. And he calls us, likewise, to care for those in need. 
Christ speaks to his disciples and he expects that they're engaged in caring for the needy, in almsgiving, in charity work. This is seen in the use of the word when. When assumes that it has happened. When assumes that it will happen again. Likewise, Christ speaks to his people today and says the same. Are we caring for the needy? Do we care for those who have needs? Are we engaged in the works of charity and almsgiving? James, the brother of Jesus, in the first chapter of his letter to the church says, true religion is caring for orphans and widows. Jesus, later in the Gospel of Matthew, uses a story, a parable, to tell what the judgment at the end of the days is going to look like. In Matthew 25, there's a crowd of people standing before Jesus, and it says he separates them before him into the sheep and the goats. The sheep on the one side are welcomed and ushered into eternal life. The goats on the other side are sent away and cast out into eternal judgment. Those who followed him were welcomed. Those who didn't were sent away. What was the evidence Jesus used to determine who he would welcome and who he would send away? He says to them, when I was hungry, did you give me something to eat? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was without clothes, did you give me something to clothe myself with? And the disciples, they look at him and they ask, when, Jesus, would we have seen you hungry or thirsty or without clothes? When would we have seen this? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, as you did it or did not do it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, in Jesus' words, Jesus says to care for the needy. Those who care for the needy care for Jesus. But if you're like me, when someone comes up to me on the street and I'm walking by and they ask if I can spare a few coins, I might think to myself, well, I have a $5 bill, but that's a little too much for me, you know, too big of a commitment. Or I'll just say, no, sorry, I, I don't have anything. I can't help you. I might think to myself, well, that person's going to waste it. They might squander it. I don't know what they're going to do with the money that I give them. So instead, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to give it to an organization. But then I go home and I forget about this whole interaction and I never actually give the money to the organization that I said I was going to give it to. Maybe we feel the pressure of high inflation rates and the need to squirrel away whatever extra we have just in case. But even in those situations, we are constantly told in Scripture that God will provide for the needs of his people. To the Corinthians, Paul calls them to give to the church of Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's taking up an offering to support the church in Jerusalem. He says, you have the means to care for this church, and they don't have the means at the time. And he says, but if you give now, they will support you when your time of need comes. When the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided for them every day with this bread from heaven. Manna came down like little flakes of, of bread on the ground. And it's recorded that everyone had their fill. When my wife Elise and I were first married, I was sponsoring her to be a permanent resident of Canada. She's American. 
Before this, she had a work visa that was valid for two years, but we got married basically right at the end of it, and so I had to sponsor her. But uh, while I was sponsoring her, things we had some issues, and she couldn't work, and she couldn't even leave our house or drive our car, and she was stuck in our 600-square-foot apartment for the better part of a year. And in the meantime, I'm finishing my undergraduate degree. I'm working 10 hours a week landscaping. In the midst of deep need, God provides for his people. Whether it was a gift card left in a mailbox or $20 stuffed in a pocket on the way to or from church, God provided for the needs of, of his people. He provided for our needs. Jesus, however, doesn't say, only give to those you know who won't squander it. He actually doesn't give us any qualifications. He just says, when you give to those who are needy. No qualification added. We can't control what other people do with what we bless, what we give them. We can only control how we respond in faith and do that which God has called us to do. And in this text, he is calling us to charity and almsgiving to those in need. But when we take a step back and consider ourselves, we quickly realize how easily we squander the gift and charity given to us in Christ. In Ephesians, Paul reminds us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, dead due to our rebellion against God, in every way undeserving of charity and grace, deserving instead to be passed by without a second thought. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, made his people alive in Christ. Deserving of death, those who profess faith in Christ are given life instead, and not a day goes by when we don't squander that gift. Not a day goes by that we don't squander this, this gracious gift that was given to us, by, not by any merit of our own, but by the grace and mercy of God. And we have the audacity to think that we need not obey the commands of God because we might give away something that will be squandered when we ourselves, day by day, squander the grace of God given to us. It is a, a humbling thing to think of how little I deserve, how little we deserve, and yet how gracious our Father in heaven was to us. He did not leave us. He did not forsake us in the, the deepest needs of our lives, the need for salvation. Instead, he gave it. He gave freely of his son who he sent, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to live in perfect obedience to the law, to die a perfect death on the cross, to bear our sins that we might be raised to life for his glory. And God is, is the owner of all of the cattle. Everything he created is his. Everything we have is his. Everything we have is but a gift of grace from God in our lives. And we have the audacity to say, I just need to clutch this a little tighter. The grace of God ought to free us to give freely to those in need. Recognizing how easily we squander things ought to free us to give freely to those even if we don't know what they will do with it. Jesus says to care for those in need, not to care only for those who have earned it, because the reality is none of us earn it. No one can ever earn the lavish gift which Christ bestowed upon us, salvation. So who are we to demand that those we care for earn it? 
Beware the performative mindset, Jesus says. Nevertheless, care for those in need. Care for those in need. Here's the third. Don't seek the praises of man. Care for those in need. Don't seek the praises of man. In Matthew 6, verse 2, it says, Thus, when you give to the the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Those who live by and for the praise of others receive their reward in the praise of others. Those who live by and for the praise of others receive their reward in the praise of others. One of the symptoms of our overly connected age, overly connected world, is that we love to share whatever we're doing, uh, at least the good things we're doing online for everyone to see. Social media especially stokes up this performative mindset in everything we do. I remember a few years ago, a video was getting shared around, it went viral, I suppose, in which these guys were filming uh, as they were walking down in a, you know, in a less off, less well-to-do part of town. And there's some guys on the street who don't have shoes, and they're videoing this, and they see that there's a guy without shoes. And they video themselves going to the shoe store and buying the shoes and bringing them back to the man on the streets and giving the shoes to him. It seems It's a great thing, a good thing to care for the needs of those that they have. But then, you know, they go on to post it on social media, it gets shared a million times, thousands of comments saying, good job. Jesus says those who do the good things for the applause of others have received their reward. Those who do the things because they'll, get, they'll go viral have received their reward. Those who do the things because they know that people are looking when they otherwise wouldn't do them because they know that they'll get the applause, they have received their reward. Jesus says those who perform acts of faith or charity for the applause of man have received their reward. Don't get me wrong, it's good, it's necessary. We are called to care for the needs of those around us. But in our performative age, we often don't do things like that without making sure we get proper documentation. We get receipts so that we can show others how much money we gave. We bring up in conversation these situations we were in where we were able to care for the needs of others, hoping for recognition. We post about it on Instagram or on Twitter to see what sort of interaction or how many likes we'll get. Jesus doesn't just say that those who draw attention to their charity receive their reward in the applause which it generates. But in Matthew 23, he actually says that those who do what they do for the applause of others do it hypocritically. Those who do what they do, not for the actual care and concern of other people, but that they might receive applause and praise, are doing it as hypocrites. They don't really care if that's the motivation. Sure, we will draw attention to ourselves, we'll make ourselves look good, but if we don't get noticed for it, was it really worth it? If someone doesn't pat me on the back or if I don't get, get the likes or if, if somebody doesn't notice, have I just wasted my time? Our performances are entirely dependent upon what sort of notice we will get for giving to the needy. 
And Jesus says to those, you hypocrite, you don't care. You're just putting on a mask of care and concern that you might receive recognition, that you might receive accolades, that you might receive praise. No, Jesus says, don't seek the praise of others. Beware the performative mindset. Instead, act in secret. Don't seek the, perf the performative mindset. Don't seek the praise of others. Instead, act in secret. Matthew 6, verse 4, uh, verses 3 and 4 say, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus calls his disciples to an active faith done in hiddenness, not for public display and adulation, but rather privately and secretively. There is a spiritual potency, writes John Stark, to the secrecy of faith. There's potency in the hiddenness. What we often think the most secure people in the faith are those who are loud and public about it. Jesus says those who are most secure in their faith are actually the meek and the mild, the quiet and the secret, those who do their acts and deeds not for the praise and adulation of others, but for the reward that comes from the, our Father in heaven. Jesus holds up as an example the meek and the mild, the humble and the lowly, those who are being conformed into his image those who act out their faith in secret, those not seeking the praise of man nor even letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, those people, Jesus says, will be seen by our Father in heaven. In fact, hiddenness, I believe, is an attribute of God. Hiddenness is, a, is an aspect of God's character. The God we worship is spirit, records John in his gospel. Always seeing while dwelling unseen. The God we worship is transcendent, so much greater than we ever realize, and yet he is astonishingly imminent, so much closer than we even know. When we come to realize this, we can stand back with Hagar, Sarah's servant, in Genesis 16, and speak the same words as her, we worship the God who sees us. And when we come to recognize that our God sees, even when no one else does, it frees us. No longer do we need to do what we're doing for the, the notice, for the eyes of others, for the, the, the praise that comes from the lips of others. Instead, we are assured that God sees. When no one else does, God still sees Jesus says, our Father who sees in secret will reward those who serve him in secret. The reward is a guarantee. Those who serve in secret, Jesus says, will be rewarded by the God who sees in secret. And that reward is salvation. That reward is eternity with God. How much better is that than the, the, the momentary fleeting praise of a friend, the applause of someone we don't know online, we are promised something greater. We're promised eternity with Jesus. We would be foolish to let that go by. We would be foolish to think that the momentary 
joy of being recognized is better than the eternal joy of life with God. Eternal life with Christ. But the problem is we're drawn towards the immediate gratification. The problem is we're we're drawn to the immediate gratification. We're slow to commit to that which comes with delayed gratification. We want what we want and we want it now. And too often we want to be recognized immediately for the performances we've just done, for the acts we've just engaged in. Delayed gratification, however, is a Christian virtue. Delayed gratification is a Christian virtue. We're never guaranteed an easy, immediately gratifying life in Scripture. But we are assured of something better, eternal life for those who put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And this reward is guaranteed. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Act out in faith in Christ. Seek not the adulation and praise of man, and the end reward will come. God has guaranteed it. He has not lied. He has never lied. He will not leave nor forsake his people. If he says it's coming, it's coming. If he says a reward is guaranteed for those who live and act in secret, a reward is guaranteed. He will not change his mind. He will not forsake those who call out to him. Those who trust in Christ will always receive the reward he has promised to them because God is always faithful to those who call out upon his name for salvation. And in light of this salvation, available to all through Christ, go, Jesus says, and care for the needs of those around us. He cared for our needs greater than we could ever imagine. And he says, in light of what I have done, in light of what Jesus has done on our behalf, he commissions us to go and do likewise, to go and be light, to go and be the ones who point to Jesus, that everyone would know that Jesus cares for those who need. But a question still remains. Does this mean that if I'm going to care for someone, I need to go under the cover of darkness? Maybe I need to dress up in a costume so that someone won't recognize me while I'm out there caring. If I'm with someone and, and, and someone approaches me and asks for money, does this mean that I can't actually help them because then I'll be seen by someone and that would then be conflicting to what Jesus has just said? I don't think that's what this is getting at. Instead, like everything else that Jesus has been doing so far, he's saying, check your heart. What is your motivation? What are you seeking in giving? What are you seeking in caring in front of other people? Are you doing it for their praise? Are you doing it for their adulation? Are you doing it so that you'll be recognized in the moment? Or are you doing it because you want to glorify God through your obedience to his command? What Jesus is addressing here ultimately has to do with the motivation we have to act out in faith. Why do you give? Why are you engaged in charity work? Why are you seeking to get involved in local organizations or donating money to different causes? Is it for the praise of man? Or is it for the glory of God? In his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper writes these words. God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion Namely, a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. 
Enjoying and displaying are both crucial. If we try to display the excellence of God without joy in it, we will display a shell of hypocrisy and create scorn or legalism. But if we claim to enjoy his excellence and do not display it for others to see and admire, we deceive ourselves. Because the mark of God enthralled joy is to overflow and expand by extending itself into the hearts of others. Are we living our lives as ones which display our passion and fervor for God's glory? Or are we living our lives in praise of the, the, in pursuit of the praise of our fellow man? That is the question to be asking ourselves. Are we more concerned with getting proper recognition and commendation for the acts of faith we've engaged in? When I'm working from home a majority of the time and I take a few minutes in the middle of the day to wash some dishes or at the end of the day to start making dinner, am I doing that so that when my wife comes home every time she'll say, wow, thank you, look at all this you've done for me? No. If I was doing that, you'd think I was crazy. You'd think that I'm just fishing for compliments. No. We do it to show our love for something. We do the, the act to show our love. And if we're doing the act in order to receive the praise of others, then we have our love out of place. Our love cares more about others than it does about God. As we come to a close, here's a couple questions to think about this week. Do our lives display a passion to glorify God more than a desire to win the applause of others? What is our motivation? What opportunities are there around us to care for the needy this week? Surely we all know people in need. We're all in neighborhoods, families, co-workers. Needs are all around us. How can we practically live out the grace that God has so graciously given to us? Those who live out an active faith done for the applause of man receives their reward in this life. Those who live out an act of faith done for the glory of God have a greater reward yet to come, eternal life in Christ. Too often we do things, we make decisions, we act out in faith for the wrong reasons, the wrong audience, the wrong reward. But today, God is calling us to give up our performative mindset and instead to rest and hope in the eternal reward yet to come. Jesus is calling us to give to the needy because we ourselves are needy and undeserving of his grace. In light of what he has done for us, he says, go therefore and do likewise. Not that we might earn or merit salvation. That has already been accomplished and achieved on the cross. But our work is evidence of the work that Jesus has done in us. And as we celebrate this truth, we come together at the end of the sermon every week to partake in communion, where we have the opportunity to, to eat and drink the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus poured out for us, when we recognize that we were not worthy of, of anything, of his grace, and yet he graciously bestowed it upon us. We come forward and we take and we eat the, the, the wafer and the juice, and we celebrate that Jesus poured out his blood on our behalf. His body was broken 
our sins have been forgiven. He has taken it upon ourselves that we might be justified and we might walk in life and go forward doing the good works that he has prepared for us. So as we close, I invite you, come forward. If you profess faith in Christ, come, take and eat. And if you don't profess faith in Christ this morning, I encourage you, would you take Jesus instead? Would you stand with me and we'll close our time in prayer. Father, you are so good and gracious. We are undeserving of your grace and goodness, and yet you've freely, graciously bestowed it upon us, not for anything we did, but for your fame and glory. As we come to the table, as we come to eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus broken for us, would we be reminded of our sin that has been washed away on the cross? We know that we could not do this ourselves. And as we go this morning, we pray, would, by your spirit, would you empower us to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. Empower us to care for the needy in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.